The first reading today is taken from Proverbs chapter six, verses one to nineteen. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have struck hands in pledge for another, if you have been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the word of your mouth, then do this, my son, to free yourself. Since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands, go and humble yourself. Press your plea with your neighbor. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provision in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit, and scarcity like an armed man. A scoundrel and villain, who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart, he always stirs up dissension. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without a remedy. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him: haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. And the second reading is taken from 1 Corinthians 1, and I'm going to start reading at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, "I will destroy the wisdom of the wise; the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate." Where is the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified—a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Thank you, Chris and Kerry, for reading. My name's、uh, Simon, one of the ministers here, and、uh, let me pray as we look at this passage together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the wisdom that is found in Christ. 
Thank you for him. Thank you that he came to reveal your wisdom in its fullest extent. And uh, Lord, we pray that as we engage this morning again with this wonderful book of Proverbs, that we would see how the wisdom there leads us to Christ. And please, Lord, help us, fools that we so often are, uh, to know that wisdom more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. We all want to be wise. We've been saying that for the last few weeks, and this book of Proverbs so far has given us lots of positive instruction and examples showing us how to live wisely in God's world. This week, we take a look at the other side. Uh, If you're not becoming wise, says Proverbs, you are becoming a fool. I think every week we've mentioned chapter 1, verse 7, which is a, a very key verse in the book of Proverbs. Just flick back there for a moment. You may have absorbed the first half of that verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Well, here's the second half. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. There's the flip side of everything that we've seen in Proverbs so far. Two choices are laid before us in this book of Proverbs. Two ways to live. You become wise or you become a fool. That's the framework Proverbs sets out for us. Everyone starts off in the world of Proverbs as simple. The word simple uh, is there in chapter 1, verse 4. If you can see it just above where you're looking. Uh, which says, Proverbs are for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Simple here doesn't mean stupid or educationally challenged. Uh, more like naive, inexperienced in living in God's world. And Proverbs says, if you're simple, become wise. Otherwise, you'll become a fool. None of us wants to be a fool. We hate feeling foolish in front of other people, don't we? I mean, obviously that is true. But wouldn't it be tragic ourselves to look back on our own choices in life and think, I've been a fool. I've been an absolute fool. And one of the ways Proverbs teaches wisdom is by negative example, which is what we get in this uh, chapter. Three ways in chapter 6 to be a fool. Uh, I don't know if you've come across uh, the song, Dumb Ways to Die. Has anyone come across that? Uh, My wife and I came across that the other week, and we cannot get it out of our heads. It is annoyingly addictive. It sticks there. And it was uh, commissioned by an Australian railway company who wanted to put an advert on TV to stop people doing silly things, trespassing on railways and getting killed. Uh, And so this advert has lots of little cartoon characters getting killed in lots and lots of bizarre, vaguely humorous ways, um, accompanied by a ridiculously catchy song. And the first verse goes something like this. Set fire to your hair, poke a stick at a grizzly bear, eat medicine that's out of date, use your private parts as piranha bait. Dumb ways to die. So many dumb ways to die. And there's verse after verse of dumb ways to die. And of course the last verse is about doing stupid things on the railway as the dumbest possible ways to die. And it really worked. Uh, at least if the fact that that song has gone viral on YouTube is anything to go by. Um, that song seems to be just getting into people's heads. That is something of the tactic here in Proverbs 6. It shows us different ways to be a fool so that we can see the ugliness, the stupidity of it for ourselves and realize that to live that way would be foolish and choose instead to pursue wisdom. The last few verses of chapter 5 set the scene for where we're going. Let's just pick it up from verse 21. 
For a man's ways, this is uh, chapter 5, verse 21, for a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. So if wisdom is the way to life, folly is the way to death. So let's look at these three fools in chapter 6. Uh, on your handout, I've called them the surety, the sluggard, and the stirrer. The surety, the sluggard, and the stirrer. If we take this to heart, we'll be prevented from being fools in the future in these ways. And maybe also we'll recognize some of this foolishness in ourselves uh, already and pursue God's wisdom instead of that. So three fools. Let's start with the surety. This is chapter one, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. What is a surety? Let's pick it up in verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have struck hands in pledge for another, if you've been trapped by what you have said, ensnared by the words of your mouth, do you get a sense of what's going on here? The surety has put up security for their neighbor. In other words, they're co-signing a loan agreement as a guarantor of that loan. So picture the situation. Somebody comes to you, maybe a friend, maybe a family member or a colleague. They say to you, I need to take out a loan, but the bank tells me that I need a guarantor. I need someone else to sign the loan document. I just need somebody else's signature on the form, and then the bank will agree to give me uh, this money. Can you just sign that for me? Would that be okay? You're, you're, You're a friend. You know me. That sounds very easy, very reasonable, Except that that little signature makes you fully responsible for the loan. So if your friend doesn't pay, you're not just saying, uh, my friend is trustworthy. You're saying, I am uh, staking my own money on this. If my friend can't pay, then uh, come after me for this loan. And they will. If you enter an agreement like that, the same red letters, the same lawyers, the same bailiffs that chase your friend will also chase you. So the bank or the lender, which has already decided that they don't trust your friend enough to give him or her the loan without some sort of backup, maybe he's got a poor credit rating or or insufficient income, is, is drawing you into the same risk and you're signing and putting yourself at financial risk there. So why, why would you do it? Why would you sign such a thing? Well, lots of reasons, really. Maybe it is a close friend or a family member who's in trouble. You want to help them. Maybe you're being generous and compassionate. Uh, you think the bank might be being unfair to them. So you want to help them get a leg up into a better situation. Um, or alternatively, maybe they are borrowing to fund an investment or a business proposal which they've explained to you and you find very convincing. There are lots of reasons why you might want to be a, a co-signatory on these things, a surety for somebody's loan. Well, verse 2, be warned. You could be trapped by what you said. You could be ensnared by the words of your mouth, it says. You could, verse 3, fall into your neighbor's hands. Now, before we go any further, let me make two very important points from Proverbs and the rest of the Bible. First, generosity is strongly encouraged 
throughout Proverbs and throughout the Bible. Proverbs 11.25 says, A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Or 22 verse 9, A generous man will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. This, in Proverbs 6, is not saying every man for himself, uh, look after your own bank account at the expense of other people and their well-being. If somebody near you is in need, then, then find a way to help them if you can. And it's worth saying that the best option, very often, is just to give, not to lend. Just give if you can. If you can give rather than lend, often that is better by far. So generosity, very important. Secondly, it's not always wrong to enter such an agreement, to be a surety or a co-signatory. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 26 and 27 is interesting on this. Let me just read this to you. It says, Do not be a man who strikes hands in pledge or puts up security for debts. If you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched from under you. The main issue seems to be, can you afford to do it? Is the debt something you could pay if you had to? Or would it break you so that you're foolishly overextending yourself, committing yourself to a risk that uh, you can't afford? My one very limited experience of this sort of thing was as a student signing a, a rental agreement with uh, a landlady quite understandably worried that a bunch of students might, might not be able to pay the rent on the flat. And uh, she wanted uh, guarantors to sign it as well. So we went and talked to our parents and uh, happily they were willing to do it. Uh, they were hoping not to pay. And, uh, but willing to, if need be. And able to, if need be. So if the funds are there, then co-signing somebody's rent or mortgage or business loan or bank loan is a choice that, that can be made, but very, very carefully, with a great deal of wise thought. Uh, asking very serious questions and being ready to accept the consequences. But if the funds are not there, then we have this problem in Proverbs 6. This person is uh, overstretching themselves. They have overreached. They're gambling with their own financial future, putting it in somebody else's hands, Uh, someone who the lender already thinks is too much of a risk. So there's every possibility of disaster. What, What is the wise course of action if you get yourself in that sort of situation? Well, verse 3. Do this, my son, to free yourself. Go and humble yourself. Press your plea with your neighbor. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. In other words, get yourself out if you possibly can, by whatever means you can. Like a trapped animal like a gazelle held by a hunter or a bird in a snare. If you haven't seen nature documentaries, uh, you might have seen it live, where an animal caught somehow goes absolutely crazy, flailing, kicking, trying absolutely everything before it's too late. Uh, I remember three people having to hold down my parents' first dog, uh, which was a very, very tiny and very docile little dog, trying to get it to eat a pill for worms. Uh, and over and over and over again, presumably thinking something terrible was about to happen, this, this thing was just wriggling, desperate to escape, trying to, trying to get away, like a cornered animal, fearing for its life. Even if it is humiliating, verse 3, 
Go and humble yourself. Press your plea. Go and do it. Go and try and get yourself released from this agreement. Time might be of the essence. Verse 4, allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Go immediately, I guess, to the borrower and say, have you taken that form to the bank yet that we signed? Please don't. I know I signed it, but I can't do it. If things went wrong, I just I, it would break me. I'm sorry. I can't be your, uh, your surety. Please can we tear it up and find some other way? If it's too late for that, maybe go to the lender. Maybe admit your mistake. Maybe the lender can do something. Uh, stop payments to the borrower or cancel or redraft, uh, redraft the agreement in some way. Uh, maybe with somebody else as, as the surety. Maybe something can be arranged. Try it. Go and plead. Maybe it's too late even for that. And all you can do is plead for mercy. I read of a man who, who co-signed an agreement for £250,000 with a friend of his who just dropped by one day with a form and said, oh, I just need a signature on here to, uh, to, to get the bank to give me this money. It'll be all right, won't you? And the, and the guy thought, oh, he's, he's a good guy. He's trustworthy. Yeah, I'll do that for him. Signed the form. The borrower couldn't pay, defaulted on the loan. And the bank came after him for everything. So of that $250,000, it was, I think, not pounds, they, the bank took 100000 from him by taking his money, his possessions, and they were on the brink of carting his wife out of their house uh, when his pleading fell on merciful ears. And the bank finally decided it was enough and had mercy and stopped pursuing You never know. (laughs) Try everything. Now these verses speak to someone who's got themselves into that situation and offers kind fatherly advice. But by implication, don't get into that situation at all. Other Proverbs say the same thing. Proverbs 17.18 says, A man lacking in judgment strikes hand in a pledge and puts up security for his neighbor. And we've already seen the warning in Proverbs 22 about uh, don't do this if you haven't got the means to pay. So be careful. Our culture recently has said, yeah, yeah, don't worry. Overextend yourself. Careless debts are are very, very normal. Even after the the credit crunch, uh, national governments seem to be addicted to living beyond their means, don't they? And the average UK household still owes something like £7,500 in personal loans and overdrafts and credit cards. It's regarded as normal to overextend yourself in that way. So let Proverbs 6 caution you against being a a surety for somebody. Be very, very careful if someone asks you to co-sign something. Don't be a fool. Maybe it is a a joint business venture or a property investment or some other supposedly fail-safe deal. Maybe it's just a, a personal loan like here. Don't be a fool. Add up the numbers. Work it out. Work out what you can afford. And don't get in over your head. Maybe even then, don't get in. There might be some here this morning who need to extract themselves from a foolish agreement. Proverbs 6 says, do it today. Tomorrow, if you can't do it on a Sunday. Don't be too proud to admit it. Please, apologize. Make restitution if you need to. Get yourself out if you can. There might be others here who have already experienced disaster in this kind of area. And I know one or two, not in our church, who've come to ruin or near ruin this way. Well, here's something wonderful. Jesus took on our debts. 
our sin, our rebellion against God leaves us with a debt that we could never pay. Not in a billion years. We should expect eviction, imprisonment, punishment on an eternal scale because of how we've treated God, says the Bible. And yet Jesus willingly took our debts on himself, died in our place. He is our surety, which we're going to sing later, if we trust in him. And his resources are limitless. The surety needs Jesus. So from the surety, we move in verses 6 to 11 to the sluggard. What a great word that is, the sluggard. Uh, The mention of sleep and slumber that was there in verse 4 triggers this new example of being foolish. And the sluggard gets, uh, we have to say, less kind words than uh, the the surety. So verse 6, go to the ant, you sluggard. What is a sluggard? We get a picture of him in verse 9, 10 and 11. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a bandit, and scarcity like an armed man. The sluggard lies there, much like a slug, uh, which the English word obviously draws comparisons with. Uh, You don't see that many slugs uh, living in London, but uh, our son Joel saw his first one, I think about six months ago. We were were in Hampstead Heath, and there was an enormous one right in the middle of the path. And so we got Joel over to have a look, and well, we had all the time in the world. Normally when you want Joel to see an animal, a rabbit or something like that, you've got seconds. There it is. Oh, it's gone. It's gone. Slug. Come and have a look at the slug. Still there. We had as much time as we wanted. They do not move very fast at all. Digging into the rest of Proverbs. Here's a few snippets from the rest of Proverbs about the sluggard. Some great pictures. Chapter 26, verse 14 says, As a door turns on its hinges... So does a sluggard on his bed. He's stuck to his bed like a door on its hinges. It doesn't go anywhere else. It just hinges on the bed. Chapter 15, verse 19 says, The way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is like a level highway. In other words, the the sluggard can't get anywhere because his path is too... Well, it's got a hedge growing in it and thorns coming out of it, and he can't actually get out of his house because there's a hedge that he's never dealt with. The sluggard is pictured in chapter 20, verse 4, as not getting round to plowing or sowing seed and then finding nothing when he looks for the harvest. And 12.27, he has meat, but doesn't get round to cooking it before it goes off. 19.24, he puts his hand in a dish to eat, but can't be bothered to lift the food to his mouth. He makes silly excuses for himself. Uh, 22.13, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside, or I'll be murdered in the streets. And so he never goes out. Clearly these are, are just in his head. They're not real. He's a pain in the neck for others. Proverbs 10.26 says, as vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is a sluggard to those who send him. And finally, he's a danger to himself. 13 verse 4 says, the sluggard craves and gets nothing. Most sharply, uh, 21.25 says, the sluggard's craving will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. That is the crucial point. The sluggard hates work. It's not speaking against appropriate rest and sleep and leisure at the right times. Of course, don't deprive yourself of sleep. 
that can be dangerous. Uh, the, the London preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, would deal with people who came to him with, uh, with pastoral problems, often by saying, have you had enough sleep? And if the person said no, he would say, well, go and get enough sleep and then come back and tell me your problem. Uh, get enough rest. Sometimes the most godly thing to do is just go to bed. But this sluggard is not tired. He has an aversion to work. He's the student who occupies his time with anything but his course until it's too late and the last-minute cramming's never going to work. It's the office worker who looks busy, but they're doing anything but work, planning holidays, deciding which car to buy next, uh, personal email all the time, uh, Facebook. It's the person who lives for retirement rather than the present. And it's a series of tiny decisions. I don't know if you picked that up in verse 10. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. This is not the person who says, this week I'm going to be horrifically lazy and do nothing. It is the person who keeps on saying again and again and again, oh, just a little bit more sleep, just a little bit more time on Facebook, and then I'll get on with it. That decision again and again and again and again makes a sluggard. Like most sins, some of us will be more inclined to this than others. I imagine all of us know the temptation, though, and have fallen for it on occasion. Our culture often doesn't help. I don't know if you've seen those lists of first world problems that do the rounds. Um, Here are a couple of examples. Very sluggardly like behavior here. My laptop is low on battery, but the charger is over there. I brought too many groceries, and now I have to make two trips to bring them back from the car. I woke up at noon, and now I don't know whether to eat breakfast or lunch. (laughs) I had too much for lunch, and now I feel tired. I'm filling in my country on a website, and the UK is right down the bottom at you. (laughs) You get the idea. In the comfortable, developed world, we've grown used to sort of labor-saving devices, which are wonderfully useful, but... Don't let that con you into thinking that labor should always be saved, that it's always a a bad thing, that the aim in life is to avoid labor. That's just laziness, being a sluggard. Over the years, you can see different sectors of our society falling into that sort of trap wholesale, whether it's the idle aristocracy doing nothing while the peasants work the land, or whether it's uh, the benefits culture Uh, at the other end of the scale, or in the middle, uh, supposedly the squeezed middle, still often there can be a a sort of complacency and expectation of jobs for life without review or assessment, uh, that things will inevitably improve no matter what the level of effort is that's put in. Now, you might look around and say, well, yes, but I see people getting away with it. Lazy people in my office. Lazy people in London. Uh, Whether it's the top or the bottom of society getting away with it, and that really irks you. Well, yes, remember how Proverbs work. They are typically true in this life, but only typically true. So when verse 11 says, uh, poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man, it's a warning about what will probably, typically happen in this life. Laziness normally leads to poverty. But the pattern of the sluggard, the foolish opposite to wisdom, leads to death, eternal death, if it is fully embraced as a life of sinful rejection of God. So beware. 
The Bible encourages diligence and hard work, and here the advice comes from the ant. Don't look to the slug for a positive example. Look to the ant. Verse 4, 6, sorry. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. The ant is an incredible picture of industriousness. Next time your home is invaded by a horde of ants, just before you get out the poisonous white powder or pour the boiling water down in the nest, um, just take a moment to admire and observe the industrious little columns of creatures going backwards and forwards, running in an organized line to and from their their nest and and your food. Um, uh, Look closely and you'll see them, uh, uh, the empty-handed ones going in one way and the the ones carrying great big stuff that's bigger than they are in the other direction. Uh, If you ever go to an insectarium, you'll see it all on a huge scale with those gigantic warrior, no, warrior, uh, woodcutter ants, whatever they are, the, the, the huge ones. They're amazing. Let me bring out three reasons from verses 7 to 8 to imitate the ant. Number one, they don't need constant oversight. It doesn't matter to them that the boss isn't watching. The queen, yeah, well, she's there, but she's safely back in the nest. Uh, They don't need that kind of supervision. They just get on with it. So look at yourself. Do you work differently when you're being watched to how you work when you're not being watched? Why is that? If you do, it's probably a bad sign. To some extent, you're like a sluggard some of the time. Be self-motivated. Learn from the ant. Two, they they work hard. They store. They gather. They run around endlessly carrying these gigantic things. They eat because they work. The connection for the ant is very direct between those two things. No work, no eating. And just because the connection between working and eating for us is sometimes less direct, less obvious... Nevertheless, it is still there. The Bible says in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. Note, will not work. If a person will not work. This is unwillingness to work, not inability to work. Plenty of people would love to work and can't due to unemployment, disability, and so on. The Bible doesn't accuse that person of being a sluggard if that is the case. But look at the ant and realize, if you will not work, you won't eat. And thirdly, they plan ahead. They store food in the summer, says uh, verse 8, so that they'll have provisions throughout the year. Again, we're often encouraged by our culture to just live for now, live for the day. As long as we're okay now, we're happy. Uh, We mustn't misinterpret the command that you may know from Jesus to, to not worry about tomorrow. He doesn't mean... Don't plan. Don't make provision. Trust God, yes, but work hard now in such a way that tomorrow is provided for as necessary. So learn from the ant if you're a sluggard. So tiny, so wise in these ways. But here is something wonderful for the sluggard. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you'll find that he has worked hard for you, harder for you than anyone else ever has. He came and lived to serve God all his life, the only one who's diligently kept every law. More than that, he set his face determinedly towards his death on the cross and refused to give up until he poured himself out to death, to die for the sins of people who trust in him, sluggards who trust in him.
Jesus' last words were, it is finished. He completed the work that you and I, no matter how hard working, could ever do. He paid for your sin and mine. He earned what we could never earn. And that means wonderful news for every single one of us, including the sluggard, that Jesus' perfect record of work can be ours if we trust in him. So come to him if you haven't trusted in him. His record can be yours. Last, last way to be a fool, verses 12 to 19, the stirrer. You might look at verse 12 and think, well, the obvious choice of word is the scoundrel. But actually, uh, these two paragraphs here, what they have in common, uh, the summary lines in each are verse 14, uh, the one who always stirs up dissension. So the person who does verses 12 to 14 always stirs up dissension. And uh, in verse 19, the last in the list is a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Now, it's not just last in a list in that paragraph. The, the unusual idiom that comes up a, a few times in the Bible in verse 16 uh, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. That, that thing of six, seven, it's not just saying, well, there's six or seven things, sort of roughly. Um, it's saying there's an emphasis on the last one. There are six things, and then look at the seventh. The seventh is where our attention should go. So this person in both of these paragraphs is a stirrer, someone who stirs up dissension, disunity. They love breaking people apart, causing arguments between people. And the emphasis in verses 12 to 15 seems to be on deliberate mannerisms and uh, physical gestures which turn people against each other. So uh, verse 12, a corrupt mouth. Verse 13, a winking eye, signaling feet, motioning fingers. This is the person who waits until their victim is looking away and then communicates something physically to other people around. So it could be with their mouth. No, 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 no. Could be with eyes, rolling their eyes. Could be with fingers. Could, I don't know, what you do with your feet, kick someone under the table, something like that. Uh, but just little undermining signals. You know that kind of person, don't you? You think you can trust them. They win your confidence. And then one day, you just catch them. Maybe half catch them as they turn away from you or as you turn away from them. And you just think, I saw that. You're turning other people against me, aren't you? And to them, it's just a game, how they get their kicks, playing politics with everybody, watching the fallout. Other people might find it very humorous, very enjoyable. But the intention is evil, says verse 14. This person is plotting evil with deceit in his heart. And the result is dissension, verse 14. Division, disunity, falling out, breakdown of trust. And in verses 16 to 19, we see an escalation of it. It's not just physical here, uh, not just gestures. It's uh, verse 17, haughty eyes again. But then, a lying tongue. No longer just little mannerisms. It's talk, the little lies, the, the little twists on the truth. Do you know people like that? Every conversation interpreted and reported as if it were some sort of game of one-upmanship. Politics read into every possible situation so that people are turned against each other. Again, it might be a very dramatic, exciting uh, conversation to be in with this person because they see all sorts of uh, fun, gossipy things that you may not have seen. It might be great to listen to. 
but it's disastrous. The writer of Proverbs puts these things on a a scale from haughty eyes in the beginning of verse 17 that then ends with shedding innocent blood in verse 17, uh, devising wicked schemes, verse 18, feet that are quick to rush into evil, verse 18. The same person might deplore violent dissension. They might look at the the news about Syria uh, and, and, and say that's awful. And yet in what they say, they're essentially doing the same divisive things with their words and their actions. A person like this might be very sociable, very liked, but a disaster in any community, whether it's an office, whether it's a a home, it could be a church. They leave hurt and broken relationships in their wake. People turned against each other. I don't know if you noticed as we went through, there's a sort of increase in the strength of the language through these verses in in Proverbs 6. The surety gets fatherly advice and warning. The sluggard gets a stern, very stern warning. But then the stirrer, these things in verse 16, these are things the Lord hates. They are detestable to him. Don't be any of these fools, but God is particularly concerned, particularly angry when you deliberately hurt others in the way that the stirrer does. Now, I know full well that as we're talking about this, you're all thinking of someone else who is like this stirrer. Let me urge you to stop doing that and think of yourself for a moment. Where might you have done this? Where are you tempted to be a stirrer? Uh, Maybe in the office. Where would it suit you to see two people fall out with each other? Where would that help your career prospects or your social well-being in the office? Where would that be true at church? God hates that. Don't do it. Verse 15. Disaster is the end of that. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Now, that can happen when a person is found out and everybody just realizes they're destroying the community. It can happen in all sorts of of ways. But wonderful news for the stirrer. Jesus Christ knows you inside and out. He has all the gossip on you. He knows all the secrets that you would hate to come out. And what did he, what did he do with that information? Did he use it against you? Now he took it on himself. He died to take away your sin, your foolishness. He died to bring reconciliation between people and God and people with each other. Jesus did the opposite of stirring dissension. Be like Christ. Don't divide people. Reconcile them. So three fools. Uh, Which one are you most like? Choose to be wise, not to be a fool, says the book of Proverbs. And that means, in the whole of the Bible, coming to Christ, who is wonderful news for fools like us. When you know you've been a fool in front of somebody, you're you're then in their hands, aren't you? What are they going to do with you? You've been exposed as a fool. Are they going to laugh at you? Are they going to kick you out? Are they going to dispose of you like the idiot you are and like you deserve? Will God do that with us? Or will he have mercy? Will he pick you up off your knees, stand you on your feet again with a fresh start? In Jesus, that fresh start is ours. 
He became our wisdom so that our folly could be forgiven. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we, we pray for each of us this morning that you'd help us to walk in wisdom and not in folly. And we thank you that our only chance of that is to put our trust in Jesus, the one who is wisdom, the one who forgives foolishness. Lord, please help us to admit the folly that is in each of our lives, to receive his forgiveness. And once we've done that, Lord, to walk in his wisdom, to not be a surety or a sluggard or a stirrer, but to live wisely and bring glory to God. In Jesus' name, amen.